Hello, and welcome to PMI's Leading for Business Excellence podcast. I'm Susanna Clark, Managing Partner of PMI, the performance improvement, consulting, training, and apprenticeship firm. This podcast brings inspiring stories from across the globe and from a multitude of different sectors. I talk to great leaders who share their experience and what business excellence means to them. Today, I'm talking with Ali Bolton from the Y Valley NHS Trust. It doesn't take a minute with Ali to understand why people are motivated by her as a leader. She combines enthusiasm with a method in a way that is very compelling. So we talk about her being non-clinical, but working on clinical and non-clinical improvements. How the skills and the tools for improvement enable her to succeed even though she's not a clinical SME. Do listen out for her approach to fabulous failures. It's completely liberating. Oh, and we also talk about PDSA using all four steps. I mean, not just plan, do, plan again, do again. You know what I mean. I do hope you enjoy this episode. So I'm delighted to welcome Ali Bolton to today's Leading for Business Excellence podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ali. You're very welcome. I'm I'm, I'm a little bit excited, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited too. It's, it's going to be good. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So I wonder if we just start off with you just giving us a bit of an introduction to yourself. So who you are and what you do. Certainly. So, Ali Bolton, I am the Fundraising Campaign Director at Y Valley NHS Trust in Herefordshire. And Fundraising Campaign Directing is not what you've always done. You're actually on a secondment at the moment, is that right? I am on a secondment. For many, many years prior to this, I was the Associate Director of Improvement across three NHS organisations, actually, because we're in a foundation group. So, I worked with Y Valley NHS Trust, uh, also with South Warwickshire Foundation Trust and with George Elliott Hospitals Trust. So yeah, a real real mixed bag. And I was spending time pre-COVID, I was spending time physically in all three of the organisations. Through COVID, obviously teams took over. And post-COVID, it was a bit of a mixed bag because we didn't all just jump back on the road again, did we? We'd suddenly got teams on our screens. So we were were doing a lot of virtual work. And how did you first get into improvement? Because you know, you had a very specific improvement responsibility. And some people start with that sort of role, but others start doing it. And I wondered which way you had arrived. Like most of my career, I've sort of stumbled into it. A lot of my career has been around programs and projects within the NHS, which inherently have improvement within them. Along came a product called QSA, which stands for Quality Service Improvement and Redesign. That it was a product that was being touted by the national team. They were looking for individuals that they could train so that that individual could go out and train others. I was working with colleagues across our ICS. So I went away, got this education and started teaching improvement. And what I'd found about the product itself, QSA, was there were a lot of things in there that I was just quite naturally doing. I hadn't necessarily given it a name or applied a method or, you know, but but I was doing those things. PDSA is a prime example. We all we all plan, do, study, act. Don't we? we do it at work and at home. I hadn't necessarily 
considered what I was doing as being exactly that. But CUSA as a product is a really rounded offer for health and social care staff. And I was just sort of basking in the glory of delivering this great product at Y Valley and across the ICS footprint that I was working in at the time. And then I was asked to spread it across the three organisations that were in our foundation group. And along with that, I undertook a review of improvement across the foundation group and then applied to become the Associate Director of Improvement um, with education as, as, it, as a solid base in terms of what, of what I was doing and how I was doing it. So yeah, it was, um, it was a bit of a journey, but I loved it. And what was it you loved about it? Being in an improvement space is, it's a gorgeous space to be in. There's a curiosity about improvement that I really enjoy. As, as humans, we, and I see this in my classrooms and with the colleagues that I spend time with day after day after day, we find, a, we find an issue in the NHS and somebody goes, oh yeah, you just need to do that. Just do that thing, that thing that I've told you to do, just do that. When in an improvement space, what you do is, oh, hang on a minute, let's stay curious about this problem. Let's dig around and make sure that actually when we are looking for solutions, we're answering the right question. I love that. And the variety that that brings to your day. For years now, no two of my days have been the same, which is the stuff that gets me out of bed every day. It's, it's just all so different and varied. There's also something as well in there for me, I think, about, so I'm not clinical. I've never been clinical, although you know, when I meet new people, that they instantly say, oh, you're a nurse? No, I'm not. There's not one clinical bone in this body. But I like to think in improvement that we can make a difference and, and, and that difference being for our patients. So that's me getting closer to the front line, I think. And improvement for me is, is all about the people. It's about building those relationships and taking them with you on this really interesting journey. Um, so we kind of, you build that vision, don't you? And and you start to describe, you've got a narrative going on around where you were and where you're trying to get to. It just makes me sparkle. I love it. It absolutely shines through, let me say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love the enthusiasm. Clearly, you're really motivated by this, which is, you know, wonderful because it is, it's a wonderful world to be working in. Absolutely. And, and particularly in the NHS, as you say, the opportunity to make a difference to patients yeah. is really meaningful, isn't it? Yeah. Would I be right in saying that the sorts of improvements you're making across the board, sometimes they'll be related to patient care and sometimes they'll be related to admin potentially? Or Oh, yeah, literally anything, anything. And when we have new members of staff join the team, that they're often confused by the fact that we could be dropped into any space and you go into it with a really open mind. So I don't need to understand to the nth degree every environment that I'm dropped in. I just need to understand their problem and then I can start to understand them and, um, and that space they inhabit. But it is being in projects of that nature. It does make you, you're a bit of a chameleon, aren't you? You're kind of, you're, you're flavoring your, yourself to whatever space that you're in at any given point. Yes, I completely support that idea that you do not need to. The only thing you need to be a specialist in is in improvement. Yes. What it equips you with is all those tools so you can ask those curious questions. Yeah, absolutely. Every step of the way. That's the thing that gets you kind of, 
I don't know. I, I suppose some teams that I've worked with, they're, they're slightly anxious. Someone's coming in to improve them. And I don't want to go into a team and improve them. I want them to make, to take ownership of it. And in order for that to happen, they, they need to get to know me. We build that relationship. They need to trust that I'm not going to do something bonkers with this lovely team that they're currently in. And yes, we might be driving for efficiencies. We might be, let's make this better, brighter, more efficient, a little bit more slick. But that ownership is with them because they're the ones that know what their story is. Um, so I, I'm at no point am I ever going to go into a team and just do and do that. Yeah, you just need to do that. That's not a space <laughs> I inhabit at all. No. No. I mean, I was uh, laughing to myself when you were talking about we all do PDSA, but then you went on to say that you've spoken to some people who just say, do that. Over the years, I've taken to, um, it's a little bit of a mantra of mine, I suppose, I will have staff who say to me, and even, even senior staff will go, oh, Ali, we PDSA'd that. And I go, brilliant. <laughs> How many cycles did you do? This glazed moment happens. And they realise that they haven't actually PDSA'd. They've done a bit of planning, a bit of doing, and then they've got on with it. It's a tough ask, isn't it, when we're all so busy. When I come along and go, oh, can we just cycle through that a few more times to make sure that we're nailing it down and we've got, got it to the best shape that we can? I must be really irritating. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you are right, Suze, that the full path of PDSA is often not fully formed, I think, in people's minds. I mean, I think you're right that sometimes it's about busy, being yeah. busy. And sometimes the very idea of testing something before you actually implement and roll it out, people find that hard to visualize perhaps or imagine how they would do that. What what advice have you do you give to the people you're working with about how to do uh, some small-scale testing, as it were? Yeah, and so for me, PDSAs are absolutely that. They're small tests of change. So we're not trying to change the world here. We're just trying to test out some small changes to see whether they actually work in a real environment. And if they don't, you just unpick it and have a rethink. You just keep it really simple. And also, I talk about fabulous failure at work a lot. So fabulous failure for me is nothing more than a normal and natural part of improving anything. But it's also it's also a great space to learn. So you might try something and if you crash and burn, in my mind, that's just amazing. So what are we therefore not going to do again? And where are we going to take this improvement then? So if that didn't work, what will? What what have we gained from that experience? And again, that's another one of those kind of putting that in context for people. And giving them permission to fail is huge. Just me saying it out loud to staff at work, it's quite difficult for them to take on board. It's not a normal leadership practice, is it? You know, <laughs> yeah. your management practice. You go off and fail um, and let us know how it goes sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm being yeah. facetious. But yeah. actually building that into our leadership language is yeah. is, is amazingly liberating yeah, isn't absolutely. it for people absolutely and over time some people have bought into the idea and some people are still it's sort of you can see the shoulders going <laughs> it just makes them squirm the idea that i'm encouraging them to fail um and i think until you've kind of lived through it and experienced it and just let it wash over you 
Um, I, d- I don't think you can ever get comfortable with that until you have lived through it. Um, so yeah, fabulous failure is alive and well in the organisations that I've worked in, but still lots of people really quite uncomfortable with the idea. It's, it'll take years. That's a massive cultural shift for three organisations to suddenly go, brilliant, let's all just fail at the small stuff and see what we can work out from there. That, that's huge. But you know, the, you've got that caveat of let's fail at the small stuff. You're not saying let's ruin everything. No. And that's not the guideline, no. is it? No, not at all. Not at all. This is the small stuff. Let's test it. Let's try. Let's give it a whirl. And if it doesn't work, let's unpick it and see where else we're going to go. So for me, improvement is the is the small stuff that we can just get on and do day after day after day. This is not about transformational stuff, the big monster pieces of work that we know are happening out there. And um, don't get me wrong, I think I think there there is a place in there for fabulous failure and PDSAs. But quite naturally those things sit in that really grounded piece with teams on the front line, you know? Yes. So what sort of system do you use with people when you're working with a new team to try and help them understand some of these new cultural norms that you're introducing? So the um, I work really closely with, I was doing in my previous role, sorry, working really closely with the programme projects and improvement teams across the group. Because because me as an individual, I can go and talk to people, obviously, but I'm a, I'm a little bit thinly spread. So I need people who are in the same headspace as me to take this out into their organisations. So spending time with programme project and improvement types, encouraging them to attend CUSA so that they've got all of those tips, tricks and tools at their fingertips, ensuring that they genuinely understand my principles around fabulous failure and how to use it and when to use it. And those guys, I don't know, it's just the makeup of them. They just go out there and sing and dance about it all the time. And to a certain extent, they're showcasing how to do this stuff on a daily basis. So I was working with, and I still am working with, some amazing people who really do bring this to life. It has a sort of ripple effect, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. As those ripples grow, teams of people coming on board with it, very, very satisfying. Absolutely. Really. It's just, it's a complete joy. And the marketing that we do of the CUSA program, for example, is fairly limited. Those programs fill up of their own accord, every cohort. So we do a little bit of singing and dancing about it, but more often than not, it's word of mouth. People are coming to those programs because they see it as something that they 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 need and they want. Um, so they sign up, they come along and, and the practitioner program is five days. And so that's not a small ask, is it? In, in an NHS right. space, that's not a small ask. Um, and we get 30 or 40 people in that classroom every time we put a session on. You've also explored apprenticeships in the improvement space. But I'm conscious that there will be people listening to this who aren't familiar yeah. with the improvement apprenticeship schemes. So although we offer tiers um, of education around improvement, and we can get people to an accredited level, of improvement. I was really conscious that beyond that, it felt like there was a gap in the market for me. And I wanted people to have access to a qualification that would potentially enable them to be employed in an improvement space. So I did quite a lot of research around what was available and came across Capella, who were the 
improvement specialists that I was using. And what, what I really liked about Capella was that they weren't an organization that were offering like anything and everything in terms of an apprenticeship. They had a real focus on quality, which spoke volumes to me about their expertise in that space. And so I marketed the program across the three organizations and I was marketing it at staff who, I mean, they, they were already employed. So this was about their line managers accepting that for 20% of their week, they would be focused on their um, improvement education. What I'd also described, though, was the fact that lots of the guys that were applying to do the apprenticeship were already doing improvement projects. So this wasn't actually about creating more work, but it was about ensuring that these staff had a little bit of breathing space in their week to complete those assignments and to do the work that needed doing. I rolled it out across three organisations. It didn't catch on as quickly as I had hoped it would. I did that. I get really excited about stuff. So I'm buzzing with it. I'm like, yes, we've got these improvement apprenticeship. And I think we had three or four people sign up to it, which I was a little bit dejected by that. But I did have to have a word with myself. Again, this was this was that next cultural step that we were taking as three organisations working together. And these things sometimes just have a slow burn, you know, so you've just got to let them grow. And in the same way as CUSA worked from a word of mouth perspective, my hope is that our improvement apprentices will spread the word around what's available for our staff in terms of that next step around their improvement education. Do you think that the whole term apprenticeship is yet understood in terms of an adult professional career? I think it's getting better. I think people are getting their heads around the idea that apprenticeships, there's funding available, the levies are there, particularly in big organisations like the ones I work in. I mean, we're using it for nurses. There was talk about using it for doctors. So this, I don't think this is going away. I think this is just an evolution in education beyond the school and college environment or university. And we just need to get better and brighter at how we use the levies that are available to us. I think there's a way to go. I think I think people have still got some of those. You might remember, Suze, when, when I was growing up, if you were on an apprenticeship, you were earning an absolute pittance. And yes, being educated and yes, in employment, but earning very little. But it was also something you did as a school leaver. You know, it wasn't something that at, in your 30s, you could suddenly decide to enroll in an apprenticeship as part of your career. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that was unheard of, wasn't it? But now, a very different space. Anyone can sign up to an apprenticeship. I think somebody said to me the other day, yes, up to the age of 74. And I was like, really? Anyway, I don't know where that number came from, but that's <laughs> what came out of her mouth. So yes, it's apprenticeships have evolved over time to meet the needs of the working population, as well as school leavers. So there's a way through here, I think, where you can have a job and earn a good salary and receive education alongside with some support from your your line manager, your organisation to enable you to spend a little bit of time expanding your mind in that way. 
So you mentioned about one of the ways that you're using the apprenticeships is to help people who've got responsibility for delivering improvements in their area yeah. to give them the space and time to be able to do yeah. that. Obviously, an apprenticeship is a combination, isn't it? So it's a combination of learning. Yes. You go and do some learning. Uh, you have some coaching and guidance that sits with you through the program. Yeah. And then obviously you need to apply it and do that on the job training and learning yeah. as well. Yeah. So how have you as an organization, you know, and perhaps you personally, set it up with the managers of, or leaders of anyone who is on an improvement apprenticeship to help them see, how, you know, and understand how they can support those individuals? So the first offer that was on the table was from me to everyone that was interested um, to come along and talk to me about what it was that they were expressing an interest in, what sort of demands could be placed on them, because what I wanted them to do was to own this education and for them to take it back to their line manager and have that conversation without having to bring Ali Bolton in to, you know, it's this you don't, you don't want to keep having to do that, do you? I wanted these guys to really own it and be able to sell it to their line manager as a good thing to do. And for the most part, they did. There was the odd one where, yes, they'd had a conversation, but the line manager had said, can I just have a quick chat with Ali? And so, so we made that happen. A lot of it was about settling the line management's, settling their th- thought process around this 20% off job time, as it's described. Because at that point, their full-time member of staff is no longer full-time in in their minds. But the reality is we're asking them to do a work-based project. And therefore, they're still at work. They're still doing a project. So it's nowhere near 20% when you start to look at it in those terms. What they're doing in that space is maybe trialing a few new tips, tricks, techniques that they're learning as they go, and you might get a better result. And none of the line (laughs) managers refused to release the individuals ultimately. It just took a little bit of legwork on our part to make sure that everyone was comfortable right the way through the chain to allow this to happen. The more of that we do, the more comfortable people will, will become, you know, over time. And how have the people who've actually been doing the apprenticeship themselves, how have they found sort of trying to balance doing that improvement work as well as doing their own work? Because you know, whether you're on an apprenticeship or not, sometimes that's hard, really isn't hard. it? To yeah, just, just getting the day job done is, is hard, isn't it? So I offered the individuals that applied to the apprenticeship, I offered them coaching above uh, what they were receiving from Capella. I just wanted them to have somebody that they could talk to outside of their workspace, even if it was just to do that, oh dear God, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And I haven't got time. And I have had, I've had lots of that. What I was finding though was, so they might put three hours in their diary one afternoon to focus on their education. Often these guys are in operational roles and therefore their arms and legs are pulled all over the place to get stuff done all day, every day. And it was more about them having some kind of coping mechanisms around those demands. So while ever you sat at your desk and those demands are coming in, 
the assumption is that you will do them, you will get on with them, someone's passed you that monkey and it's yours to deal with. Whereas actually, if you're not at your desk, if you if you can still be on site, but you might have booked a room elsewhere. Because the reality is, if you were in a meeting, nobody would bother you for a couple of hours. So be true to yourself. If you want this education, then prioritise that couple of hours in your diary that says, I'm doing my apprenticeship. Don't just let everything else pile in on top of it. Because that's, I don't know, you're kind of undermining the process if you allow that to happen. It's about giving people permission to step away from their desk and educate themselves in a way that is going to benefit the organisation ultimately. So there were lots of long coaching conversations had around that. Yeah. Yes, I can imagine. I can imagine. (laughs) And have you found a similar range of different areas that people are working on? I know you've only got a small number at the moment going through apprenticeships. But again, have you found it both clinical and non-clinical? I have. So one of the practice educators at Y Valley went through it. Um, She actually, she went through the programme, was incredibly successful and has taken up an improvement role just over the border in Wales. So I'm a huge believer in educating NHS staff for the NHS, as opposed to being grumpy about the fact that we've given her some education and she's left. The potential for her to come (laughs) back is very real. So a mixed bag. I think the programme is very appealing to general managers, project managers, etc. I think having clinical staff in there would be a real bonus. And I don't think we've quite cracked that nut yet. Yes. Just need to keep chipping away. So can we talk a little bit about you and your leadership journey as well? I'm interested in you as, as a leader. You know, how have you learned what to do and what not to do and and have you had formal development as a leader yeah well sometimes sometimes you you learn what sort of leader you want to be by being led quite poorly don't you <laughs> rightly or wrongly yeah. there's a huge amount of learning to be had in when i there's been occasions in the past when i have been led or managed in ways that simply haven't worked for me i remember clearly thinking to myself i will never manage people like this. The learning that comes with it and the growth that comes with that is is huge if you let it be. I was married to a a soldier, which is why I'm in Hereford. There was a, a point in his career that we looked at the years ahead of us and realized that at the 22 year point, which is when soldiers stop stop being a soldier and kind of they're they're released back into the wild, if you like, there were five years before that happened. And we knew that his salary would just drop off a cliff at that point. So we built a plan around how to get my career to a good place so that when that moment happened, it wasn't anywhere near as painful. And we developed a plan around how we were going to do that. I've never done it before that and I've never done it since, I'll be honest, but it worked beautifully at that moment in time. So we we had a five-year plan um, and um, the plan described my desire to be in either leadership or education. That's that's what I wanted. So I started to educate. I started to attend education that would allow me to be in either one of those spaces or, in an ideal world, both of those spaces if I could do that. So 
I took a diploma in leadership and management. I also undertook a certificate in education. And it was a real juggle as well because I didn't go to university after school. I wasn't ready. When I was kind of 18, 19, 20, life was a social experiment for me. You know, I was kind of, I was enjoying myself. I didn't want to be in an educational space, but actually moving through my 20s, got married, two children, got a house, got a job. And then I decided to educate myself, which feels somewhat bonkers when you're juggling it all. But I was quite driven to succeed. So um, as as a family, we made it work. So by the time Mel finished in the military, I was leading an IT education team we were doing quite nicely. So so that all worked out really well. In doing the job that I was doing in IT, they offered me a project management qualification, which I snapped up, loved it. And the story drifts around there a little bit, around programs, projects. And I was working, so I've, I've worked across the health and social care systems in Herefordshire for the vast majority of the past 25 years. And I've kind of dipped my toe into each of the the elements. It makes you a little bit more rounded and a little bit more understanding and accepting if you've dipped your toe into what they do and how they do it. I was asked to undertake a productivity improvement program. I did a 12 months doing that, which which was the first real time I, I dipped my toe in improvement and just thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a really great project that allowed us to genuinely understand what the current state of our clinical staff were and the demands on their time and what we would need to do to enable us to do that. And the the final programme that I delivered for the PCT was a procurement piece for mental health. So we put our mental health wing um, out on the market um, and I managed that process it was a bit unnerving at the time. It felt like, crikey, that's £34 million worth of something that I'm selling off. Yes. But nailed it, all good. And then the PCT and the Acute Trust came together in Herefordshire to become one organisation. And I joined the transformation team um, and worked with an amazing, and there's, there's, some of them are still there, an amazing crowd of people. And kind of gone from strength to strength with that. And, and it's, it's that space where um, I said to my boss, oh, this CUSA qualification's coming. Do you mind if I just give that a whirl? And he was like, yeah. So it's just, I do feel like since that plan happened, I have drifted around a little bit. But the NHS is such a broad um, employer of people that it kind of allows you to dip your toe in all over the place and understand where your place is is. I tried commissioning. That wasn't for me. I'm definitely a provider at heart. I know that. But the NHS is an extraordinary organisation and it has given me... So I I left school with um, two CSEs. There will be people watching this that have got no idea what a CSE (laughs) is, but it's not great. Like I said, social experiment. Um, but, But somewhere in that journey, I also undertook an MBA so I've got two CSEs and an MBA, which kind of amuses me hugely, I'll be honest. Um, and I'm sure it would amuse every teacher I ever had at school. But I took the MBA at a point in my life when I was ready for it, exactly as you said, Suze. I think it's also interesting 
because you're, of your own experience to then introduce, let, you know, going back to the apprenticeships again, you know, further education whilst in employment, I can see where your understanding of how successful that could have come from. Yeah. My personal take on receiving education, so all of my education beyond school has been either given to me by the NHS or funded by the NHS or they've supported me in some way to undertake whatever whatever journey I'm on at, at that point in time. But the one thing that I hang on to, and I know some people find this a really odd mindset, is that qualification sits on my CV. So I don't mind, therefore, how much of my personal time I sink into getting that qualification. Not all of my qualifications have been undertaken in work time, regardless of the fact that the NHS is paying for it or asking me to do it, because that that sits on my CV. And I'm quite driven by that principle, always have been. So going back to influences as a leader, you talked about people who've managed you who you thought, I'm never going to do that to anybody else. But who would you say on the conscious side of that? Has there been anyone or or any of the you know training or, or books that you've read that's been a really big influence on how you think and how you lead? When I was doing my Cert Ed certificate in education, so it qualifies me to teach adults. And I had a lecturer, Patsy, she was magnificent. But at the time, this was a really new space for me to be in back in education which was a space that had kind of left me cold for a very very long time in a in a school environment and suddenly I've purposefully put myself back into this space to be educated in the way that I want um and I remember going to her one day I was in floods of tears I didn't I just couldn't get to the bottom of this assignment I couldn't make it work I couldn't this thing just would not I couldn't craft it I couldn't make it make this assignment do or say what I wanted I very clearly remember Patsy saying to me do you know sometimes it's okay to just scrape over the line Ali and that blew my mind I was like oh god is that okay (laughs) is that a thing coming from a lecturer that I held in such great esteem what she went on to say was You've got a job, you've got a life, you've got a home, you've got kids. You don't have to be star pupil all the time. <laughs> it's okay to just get over the line. And and I'm stood there sobbing in front of her, open mouthed. Um, but it was just this this magnificent light bulb moment that I will never, ever forget. Yeah, just brilliant. <laughs> you mentioned books then as well. I remember Obviously, we all read a lot of stuff, don't we? But the book "Who Moved My Cheese"? Yes. Have you read that? Have you read that one, yes, Sue? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you know when something just—it's such a simple premise, isn't it? And that's the joy of it—is that it is such a simple premise, just describing the fact that these mice have taken their trainers off and you know they've <laughs> forgotten how to collect cheese. It's just glorious. Yeah. But it's so true, isn't it? That that simplicity is the thing that allows it to get in that you can you can kind of see yourself love that. <laughs> I think the last question that I want to ask you is about when you're talking to others, if somebody comes to you and they are thinking of pursuing improvement as a career perhaps or they're looking to yeah. be a leader that's got that kind of business excellence 
business transformation improvement element how they lead then what advice would you give to that person on what they need to do how they need to think so there's i mentioned curiosity early on didn't i and it's one of those the mantras that we use an awful lot about staying curious and that that sits really nicely in a coaching space so we try very hard never to tell anybody what they should do, but having a coaching conversation with someone that is keen to join improvement from a professional perspective is absolutely the route I would take. So I've got project management behind me. Um, I've got improvement education behind me. I've got management and leadership education behind me. But I also work with colleagues who haven't got any of those things and do what I do magnificently. Yeah. This is this for me, the space that I inhabit is so focused on people and building relationships. And to a certain extent, no amount of education can give you that. You need to learn to build relationships and for those relationships to be meaningful and that trust and therefore honesty that comes along with it those are the things that I think make a really rounded leader in any space, regardless of, of whether it's improvement you want to be in or the million other spaces that you could inhabit. I think having some education behind you gives you a little bit more kudos, if you like. When I'm stood up in front of crowds of people talking about improvement, not only have I got the education, but I've done it. That's the thing that allows me to stand up there and feel confident about myself. Yeah. So that's a very long ramble of a response, but it's kind of where I go with people when they talk to me about, I'd quite like to be who you are one day, Ali, yeah. it's that conversation, isn't it? Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Ali, it's been an absolute joy talking to you today. And I love everywhere we've gone, both in terms of the work that you have done, uh, which I think is you know, really interesting in your own development. I love that plan that you made. I know that, as you said, you only did it once. But you only probably needed to do it once yeah. after that. Life just took you in the right direction. Yeah. It's been a joy. I really appreciate your time with me today. Thank you so much for joining me. It's, no, it's been lovely. Thank you, Suze. It's, it's been a real privilege. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of PMI's podcast, Leading for Business Excellence with Ali Bolton. If you'd like to know any more about how you can develop your career in business excellence, and transform your organisation, please drop me a line, team at pmi.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you.